0: I ask you if you would to turn with me in your bibles to uh this little epistle of Jude. The epistle of Jude, it's the uh it's located in the New Testament right before the last book of the Bible, right before the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Jude is the book right before that. <clears throat> and it says that uh for jude chapter one in your bulletin but actually jude does jude doesn't have a chapter one it just has verses so let's look at jude and to get something of a context i'd like to read uh well let me say this uh jude had intended to write a letter he says concerning our common salvation that we the people of God enjoy in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has been somewhat diverted from that purpose uh, because news has reached him of certain men. You'll notice in verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so with this other urgent need before him, Jude writes this letter uh, to encourage these Christians to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered uh, to the saints. And then he begins to wrap up his epistle in verse 17 And I would like to pick up our reading there. Jude, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause the visions worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Thus far, the reading of God's word. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the ministry of this, his word. Let us pray. Our Father, we bow before you in the consciousness that we are sitting under your word and surely not over your word as judges or critics. And as we sit under your word, help us, O God, in our minds and our hearts to submit to its authority and grant, O God, that you we would be made willing by your spirit to receive this word to the end, that we would submit to it and have our lives conformed to it. Father, we are conscious that we are not sufficient of ourselves. And so we cry out to you for the help that comes from above to open this your word and to bring it home to the hearts of these your dear people with power. We ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now, I've been looking at a number of images and descriptions of the church in the New Testament under the general question, what is the church? And in answer to that question tonight, we come to this brief passage in Jude and where the church is described for us as a praying assembly. Indeed, one of the marks of the church is that it is indeed a praying people. And this is something that Jude is seeking to impress upon these Christians to whom he is addressing this letter. And he has told them that these men have crept in unnoticed who were causing disturbance and division and confusion among their ranks and their sensual behavior, he underscores, as well as their heretical notions. They were men who did not have the spirit, as he tells us in verse 19. These are sensual persons who caused the divisions, not having the Spirit. And so Jude is saying in essence, this is why they are what they are. This is why they're causing confusion and disturbance and division within the church of Jesus Christ. They're men who do not have the Spirit. But, says Jude, by way of contrast, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, Praying in the Spirit. They do not have the Spirit. You pray in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit, Jude is telling them, is the principal means by which they're going to build themselves up in their most holy faith. So, praying in the Spirit is the principal means, Jude underscores, by which you'll contend for the faith once delivered to all the saints. And there is a series here, for those of you who are grammatically inclined, of uh, present participles, praying in the Spirit. Do you want to know how to build yourselves up in your most holy faith? Judas is saying, this is how you do it. Grasp this. Pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Be a people who together pray Pray to their God, believing that their God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all they could ask or think. And so Jude is establishing here a contrast between those who do not have the spirit and those who pray in the spirit. And what Jude is doing here, I think, is underscoring once again, a truth to which the New Testament continually testifies. That prayer is one of the marks of the church. That prayer is not something peripheral to the life of the church. Uh, it's not something incidental to the life of the church. Or supplemental to the church. But he's saying that prayer belongs to the very being of the very essence of the church the church is a praying people wherever you find the church you'll find it at prayer it is a people who pray in the spirit now I think we see that most remarkably illustrated for us in the book of acts and particularly the early chapters in the book of the acts of the apostles because when we are introduced as it were to There to the new covenant church of Jesus Christ, we're introduced to them as a praying people, as a people at prayer. Look, for example, at Acts chapter one and verse 14. Our Lord has told his little church to remain in Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the spirit. And as the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ, He is going to pour out His Spirit upon His people. And what do we find the church doing as they wait at Jerusalem for the promise of the Spirit? Well, we're told in verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. This is the great picture we're given of the church as she waits for the promise of the Holy Spirit. We find them together constantly in prayer. If you turn to chapter 2 of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, verse 1, you find the same image, the same picture is presented to us. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And Luke has already told us what they were doing when they were together in that one place. They were praying together, corporately, collectively, crying out to God as a body of his people. God had promised Christ that he would send the Spirit. And clearly we're told here, Clearly, what they're doing was praying that God would fulfill in Christ what he had promised to do in Christ. To send his spirit. And it is as they're joined together in one place, lifting up their voices, united in prayer to God, that suddenly... There is this sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And we're told that it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And the Holy Spirit in redemptive historical power. In the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ comes to the church. And it comes to the church, yes, sovereignly sent by God. But no less, no less as a response To the prayers of the people of God. As together they cried out to God with one heart and with one voice. Lord, you have promised to send your spirit. Send your spirit. So the church is a praying people. And it believes in the sovereignty of God. Because it expresses that sovereignty in prayer. It cries, it pleads, it beseeches. Which is why, if you look over at chapter 2 and verse 42, you see this great company of people who are converted on the day of Pentecost. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The church was constantly gathering together throughout the days of the week for prayer. And the converts unitedly con- committed themselves, devoted themselves, not as the mood suited them, nor as the occasion, as it were, warranted it, but because the church was gathering for prayer. They gave themselves, they devoted themselves to these occasions set apart unitedly unitedly, and corporately to seek God's face in prayer. So prayer is one of the marks of the church, one of the noti ecclesia, one of the identifying features of the church of Jesus Christ. There are praying people. And in Acts chapter 4, you see this as it were in practice. Peter and John, they had been released from the custody of the Sanhedrin. And they have returned to their own people and they report what has been said to them. So when they heard that, verse 24, they raised their voice to God, we're told, with one accord. And you see the same thing again over in chapter 12 in verse 5. Peter, you'll remember perhaps, was arrested. He was placed in prison. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. So the church was constantly in prayer for him. So Jude says to the believers in this epistle who find themselves confronted by scoffers, ungodly men who had secretly infiltrated their way into the church. Jude says to those believers, pray in the Holy Spirit. If you're going to contend for the faith, then pray in the spirit. If you're going to see the church rid of these godly infiltrators, then pray in the Holy Spirit. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, said John Bunyan, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And so I want simply to ask some questions this evening regarding prayer And seek to answer them. First of all. Why should the church pray? Why should the church pray? Well first of all. We see. And it may seem as though. That's simply a redundant question. Because surely. Every Christian knows. Do they not? That the church. Is a praying people. But the older I get. I confess this to you. The older I get. The more I realize. How all of us need to be reminded. Of the most basic elementary and elemental Christian truths why should the church pray for this reason because our God has ordained that by the means of prayer his promises and purposes will be fulfilled in the life of the church and in the history of this his world prayer is the God-ordained means by which his promises and his purposes are brought to fruition in our lives individually, in our families, in our congregation, in the church universal and in the world at large. You know, oftentimes we say if you people are truly Calvinist, then you believe that God has ordained uh, From the beginning to the very end. That which is going to come to pass. Why do you pray? And my answer is always this. Because God commands it. (laughs) God commands us to pray. And so why should God ordain prayer to that end? Well again surely for this reason. Because nothing more than prayer. Evidences. Our own helplessness. And our own dependence upon God. In prayer we're saying we're confessing you and I. Lord without you we can do nothing. Lord we can't but you can. That's what we're confessing in prayer. And it is so altogether basic isn't it? So altogether elementary. But you remember the admonition. Of the writer to the Hebrews. In chapter 5 there. In verse 12. For though by this time he says. You ought to be teachers. You need someone he says. To teach you again. The first principles. Of the oracles of God. And you have need. You have come to need milk. And not solid food. And I have no doubt. That applies to me. If it does not apply To many of you as well. We need to go back at times. To basics. And relearn the very elementary truths. Of the gospel. And there is nothing more basic than this. That prayer. Is the God ordained means. By which it pleases God. To bring his purposes to pass. And his promises to fulfillment. You remember those words. In the book of James, from which we heard uh, the word of God preached this morning. He says, yet you do not have because you do not ask. James 4 and verse 2. We look around at the mess that the evangelical church is in today. And uh, we bemoan our weakness and our impotence and our divisiveness. But dear people, is that impelling us? Indeed, is it compelling us? to pray, to cry out to God. Would not the Lord say to us what James said to those people to whom he wrote, you have not because you do not ask. And so here is Jude's antidote, as it were, to the men who were bringing such confusion and division and license into their midst. Pray in the Holy Spirit. He says, pray to God, to the God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever imagine. Do you really believe that? Well, we say we do. We say we believe it. But do we really believe it? Why are we to pray? Because God would have us come to him in the poverty of our other dependence. And cry out to Him to respond to our needs as His people. But then the second question we would ask is this. How should the church pray? And Jude tells us here, doesn't he? He says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Now let me say first of all what Jude is not saying. He is not saying that there are two kinds of prayer. That there is Christian prayer without the Spirit. And that there is Christian prayer in the Spirit. Jude is not saying that. Jude is contrasting two kinds of people here. Not two kinds of prayers. And he is contrasting those who do not have the Spirit with those who pray in the Spirit. Through Him, that is Jesus Christ, we have access to one God through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us unto God in our prayers through the merits of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude. So so he's not contrasting. Two different kinds of prayer. As if there was a kind of lower level. This lower pedestrian kind. Of Christian praying so to speak. And then there's this special. Some higher kind of Christian praying. That is in the spirit. The Christian life is in the spirit. So Jude is rather contrasting. Two kinds of people. But what Jude is underscoring here is this. When he says praying in the Holy Spirit. He's saying prayer is profoundly spiritual. It is a spiritual exercise or activity. Prayer introduces us into the realms of the heavenly and of the eternal. Prayer is that which engages our souls with the living God in His Spirit, if I may put it so. So when we've been praying in the Spirit, we're praying as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ and who have access to God by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who often with groans too deep for words, interprets our prayers and presents them Before God the Father. Isn't that what Paul means. In the 8th chapter of Romans. In verse 26. Where he says. Likewise the Spirit also helps. In our weaknesses. For we do not know. What we should pray for. As we ought. But the Spirit himself. Makes intercession for us. With groanings. Which cannot be uttered. In other words, He presents our unformed cries and utterances before our Father. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We come in prayer and we say, Lord, I don't know how to pray. And the Spirit is there as our helper and our teacher to take our groans and our cries. Those unformed groans and cries are taken by the Spirit and as it were interpreted to the Father. So we're the pray in the Spirit. Dependence upon the Spirit for the help and the enabling. We are to pray not as those who imagine that we know exactly how to pray in each and every time. And I experience this in the presence of God's people. Sometimes we often don't know how to pray, but we come to prayer knowing that it is the most profound spiritual exercise. We're not simply going through evangelical motions as it were. We're engaging in the world of the triune God. And we are caught up into the life of the Trinity as we pray. For we have the access to the Father by the Son through the Spirit. As Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 18. So we're being caught up into the life of Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. Then the third question we need to ask is this. When is the church to pray? When is the church to pray? Well, of course, we're the pray at all times in the spirit. As the Apostle Paul expresses it in Ephesians 6 and verse 18. We're the pray as individuals. We're the pray as families. But the great emphasis of the early chapters of the book of Acts is that we're the pray, as it were congregationally Corporately, unitedly. We're told in Acts chapter 1 that these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And that's not telling us that they all had different quiet times. Although uh, let us never disparage a quiet time as it were. Would to God that more Christians would indeed carve out more time in their days to seek the Lord. But that's not the emphasis here in the book of the Acts. Now, you may ask, where is there a biblical command where it says that outside the Lord's day, the ordained day of God, the Sabbath day that the church is together? But that is holy to misunderstand the way by which God guides and directs His people. He guides and directs not only by precepts, But oftentimes by principles and by examples as well. There was no text that said, now the church must meet every day at this specified time. Or that church must meet on Wednesday evenings or Thursday evenings or Monday evenings for prayer. No, nowhere in the Bible do we read any such thing. You say, well, why then did the church meet together constantly to pray? It was because they felt the need to do so. They were commanded to do so, yes, but they were conscious of their need. My friend, are you conscious of your need to pray? Of your own need to cry out to God on behalf of yourself, on behalf of your family, on behalf of your loved ones and neighbors, on behalf of a godless world, we must fill that need and we're to pray constantly. If we're wise, we will seek out times when it is appropriate and right for the church to gather corporately to seek God. Again, you see that in Acts 2 and verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. I think very clearly there, there's a reference to the gathering of the church of Jesus Christ on the Lord's Day. And in addition to that, and in prayers. So there was a heart devotion to corporate united prayer. If we're too busy to pray, dear people, then we are too busy. But then fourthly and finally this, why should the church pray? What is to be the content Of our prayers. Well, the shorter catechism puts it beautifully. In question and answer 98, it says, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. We're to pray for everything that is agreeable to the will of God. Let me just mention a few of these as I bring this study to a close. First Thessalonians 4 in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Young people in church this evening, it is God's will. I can tell you this. It is God's will that you abstain from sexual relations until you're married to one woman or to one man. It is God's will that you do that in this present age that would press you and seek to conform you to its mold. You need to know that it's God's will for you to be sanctified That you be separated from the values and the ambitions and the aspirations of a godless world. And that you have your life conformed to the purity of God's directives in Holy Scripture. You should be praying daily, Lord, save me, spare me from this, keep me from that. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that your life should be holy, set apart unto the Lord's. And we should pray for that. We should pray for that with you. And we should pray for it for ourselves as well. Then again, in First Thessalonians 5, verses 17-18, through 18, Paul writes, Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus you, it is God's will that we should give thanks in all circumstances, but you say, "How can I do that? Look at the unexpected circumstances that have come to blight my life now indeed, I know in so some measure that it's easier said than done, isn't it? But you know what it is to, that enables a Christian to give thanks. In all circumstances, sometimes with tears from a heart that is breaking. None of this shallow nonsense of glib smiles. Oh, praise the Lord. Sometimes we give thanks in circumstances with tears and with breaking hearts. Why? Because we know that the God who is ours, who belongs to us in Jesus Christ, He rules the heavens and the earth. And He will bend all things for His own glory and for my good. And ultimately, all things will work together for those who love God, for those who are the called according to His purpose, all things, nothing excepted. All things, it's rather breathtaking. And we plant our lives there. It is God's will that we give thanks in all circumstances. Just two other things briefly as I close. Uh, John chapter 6. Listen to these words of Jesus. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me. I should lose nothing but raise it up in the last day. This is agreeable to God's will. That God will lose nothing and no one whom the Father has given him. We can pray, Lord save your elect. Save everyone you've given to your son. Lose not one Father Lose not one. Why? It's God's will. And then in the next verse. And here's the fourth. And this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the son. And believes in him. May have everlasting life. And I will raise him up. At the last day. And we can pray Lord. You're not willing. That any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. O oh Lord, save sinners. It is of your mercy to save sinners. For you have willed that all who see the Son and believe in Him may have eternal life. And so we're to pray, offering up our desires to God for everything agreeable to His will in the name of Jesus Christ. The church is a praying people. Prayer expresses our other dependents on the Lord. And prayer reminds us that apart from God, we can do nothing. So prayer is elemental as well as being elementary. It is so basic, it is so altogether basic. And so Job says, You're to contend for the faith. But if you're going to contend for the faith, if you're going to stand against those who do not have the Spirit, then you need to pray. In the spirit. You need to be a praying people. I love what Bunyan said. We can do no more than pray. After we've prayed. But we can do more. But we cannot do more than pray. Until we have prayed. The early church set before us an example. And the Holy Spirit is saying. As that example unfolds in the history of the church. It's as though the Holy Spirit is asking us over and over again, are you getting the point? Are you getting the point where to pray in the Spirit? So the church is a praying people. We do not have. We do not have because we do not ask. May God help us to be more of what we should be. Let's pray.